full disclosure, I know nothing about Global Frontier Missions, so um, they may or not may, may or may not be a good source. Uh, but the the video was, I think, helpful to frame up what is going to be one of the primary points of our sermon today. So just have that in mind. Uh, we're going to get to why that matters in, in just a moment. Uh, and even as you're thinking about that, as you think about people being made into disciples, some of you are here and you're just checking out church for the first time, maybe ever, maybe for a long time, and you're not even sure what that means. You know some church people, right, and, and you respect them maybe, and, and you're coming because of them, but, but you're not sure exactly what it means to be a disciple. And so I want, I want to even just give you some, uh, you know, validation. Like, I get that. I remember being a young um, kid in church and hearing stories from the Gospels. We're in uh, the Gospel of John. It's where we're going to be. And uh, I remember reading some of those first stories about the calling of some of the first disciples. And, and, uh, and some of those stories are just like, and they, you know, they hear Jesus say, come, and they just drop everything, and they go. And, they, they like, and, and the pastor would emphasize like how they've left their nets, which was their job, and they've left their homes and their family, and, and they're just following Jesus. And I remember being like, that's cool and all, but like, I feel like I'm missing something because that's crazy. Like, anybody else? Like, really? Like, they just saw him once, and then they're like, cool, I'm in. Like, that's really, really bold. Now, that's not to take away at all from the incredible nature of Jesus, as Micah was saying. And that has most to do with those stories, is seeing, beholding, like seeing more than just with your eyes, but with the eyes of your heart, seeing, beholding who Jesus is absolutely causes people to walk away from everything in order to grasp him. Walk away from everything that, that is selfish, that is sinful, and that is not of what he is, is leading them to. Not, 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 their, not their marriages, not that sort of negativity, but absolutely to let go of everything else in this world so that they can grab onto him. Man, that, that absolutely happens. But there's actually a little bit more context to it. As I begin to learn and study the Bible and see the bigger picture, there is some more context. Not to take away from the incredible power of just seeing Jesus and, and being moved, but to see actually the bigger story of what God has been doing actually makes some sense. And John, the reason that John the Baptist is in all of the gospel accounts is we get into the, the, the story of, of, of Jesus Christ on earth doing his ministry. The reason all of them include John the Baptist in some way is because the, part of that context is the very nature of, of witness, the very surprising nature of the way in which God intends to spread his message is through the witness of people. You think about, uh, the, the, there's a verse in Galatians that says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, Jesus, into the world. And we believe that God is, is sovereign, that God is not late, that God shows up exactly when he intended to show up. But I don't know about you, if I was planning to let the whole world know about my glory, I feel like 2023 would be a better time than right, like 2,000 years ago? Why? Well, there's this thing called media, and, you know, we can get news around the world in a matter of seconds, right? Something can be happening. Somebody turns their cell phone on, videos it, publishes that to some live me social media platform, and instantly thousands, millions, billions of people can watch what's happening in that moment. And if you're just strategizing and thinking, you're hanging back from God's standpoint and going, okay, when should I enter history Strategically, I might choose a little bit later when there's some more media, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he enters in in a quiet moment in history when, when his you know, promised land is under Roman rule, and there, there aren't those things now. 
There are Roman roads. There are infrastructure being developed where people can get from one place to another. So his gospel is going to be carried. But there is a specific nature by which he intends for his gospel, his good news to be shared. And that is through his believers' mouths, through actually sharing one person to another, sharing what they have seen. John the Baptist sets the stage for us in saying, I'm a witness. John the Evangelist, right, the writer of this book, sets the stage for us by making sure we know all that has preceded Jesus putting on flesh and coming into the world. All that happened before Christmas, John has been unpacking for us. John chapter 1 is an introduction, a prologue, you could call it. 1 through 18 is a cosmo, like a like an introduction from the cosmos standpoint and eternity and all that has been happening from a huge, like eternal picture. This is the context of Jesus, the Logos, the, the Word of God, the Creator, right? And then in 19 to, to 51, we, we start to shift into John giving us the specific, like momentary historical context of what's happening around physically in the town and in the place and in the surrounding area where Jesus is going to do his ministry. And by the time we get to the end of chapter one, we will see that, the, that Jesus' ministry is underway, that the first week of him actually doing work here on earth has, has, has kicked off, right? And so that's where we find ourselves, and this is the calling of, of the first disciples. This is what some would call like the birth of the church. This is a moment whenever uh, the first people other than John the Baptist see Jesus for who he is and begin to follow him, or at least that's recorded. The disciples begin to gather right here in this moment, and we start to see some of that radical life change. But what I want us to just lean into a moment because there's a similar story next week. And so we're going to take a different angle next week. But for, for today, I want to lean into the power and the incredible mystery behind this idea of witness, this idea of us saying what we have seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because this is what God uses to cause the kind of radical life change that we see that we are sometimes even scratching our heads about as far as when people become Christians. What does that mean? What is that like? And so um, as we jump into this passage, we see that it calls it the next day. All right, so that's marking in time, uh, this moment now where, where Jesus, you know, we, we see the first day. John the Baptist is talking about him. The next day, Jesus comes and gets baptized. And then we see this moment whenever he says, okay, now John is standing there with his disciples. So the big, big picture, if you haven't been here with us, is John the Baptist was sent ahead of Jesus. So Jesus was sent into the world, and, and God said, I'm going to send somebody ahead of him to prepare the way or to be a witness, to, um, to make way, to make sure that my people are ready to receive Jesus. So this begins to fill in some of the gaps of, of what's going on behind these people so radically seeing and hearing about a man and giving their whole lives to them. Well, they have been waiting for this man. They have been waiting for this Messiah. These people are the Israelites, the Jews, God's people that he has said for generations now, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a savior and they've been longing for it and there's been whispers when will it be what will he be like what will he do will he overthrow Rome how's it going to look how will he preach how will he talk what will he look like where will he come from and then we, we get into the gospel stories and we know that he comes humbly quietly into a humble young lady's story into a humble town of Nazareth Born in Bethlehem, that was, was 
prophesied in a humble manger. And then he lives a life of relative obscurity for the first 30 years. Right? But all the while, for the past hundreds of years, God's people have been wondering and waiting and leaning in. And then John shows up. This strange fella with strange hair and a strange diet in the wilderness preaching, saying, make way the path of the Lord. He is coming. The one who we've been waiting for, he is about to come. John is, is, is one foot in the Old Testament saying, like the prophets of old, God is going to send a Messiah. And he's got one foot in the New Testament because he's saying, that Messiah is here. He's coming after me. I've been sent to tell you that he's coming. So John is there and he has said, he is not only coming, but then in last week's passage, we see that John lays eyes on Jesus. God reveals to him, that's the one. And John proclaims that to the people that are around. And Jesus gets baptized. It's an incredible moment. So now it is acknowledged that John knows who Jesus is. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. So now we got another day, though. And it seems to be John repeating the same sort of thing, doesn't it? He says, uh, he's there standing with his two disciples, verse 35. And he looked at Jesus and he walked by or as he walked by, rather, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, it sounds like it's a repeat of the verses just a few, um, or the verse just a few uh, verses earlier. But in those verses, John was talking to the crowds that were gathered around him, the crowds that were there to be baptized, the crowds of people. He proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here, John is with his disciples. It's a little bit different context. It's a little bit different moment. John has disciples of his own. Now, we are so familiar with disciples primarily from our learning about Jesus's disciples, but Jesus wasn't the only one with disciples. In this context, in this day and age, there were teachers, there were people that were teaching, orally passing on the traditions and the law of God and forming up the next generation of those teachers and of those leaders, and, and different, rabbi, different teachers would be called rabbis, and they would have disciples that they would make into little miniature versions of themselves. The word disciple is, is very much a learner, someone who is following a particular leader to the end of becoming exactly like that leader. And so there were different leaders throughout the moment. It wasn't unique for Jesus himself to begin to call disciples. Other men had disciples. It was, it was common. And so John the Baptist is not unlike that. He is a teacher. He is one of influence. He is speaking with the authority of God. And so people have gathered around him and have come to sit under his teaching, more than just to come and see and, and see the show, but rather I want to be immersed in this teaching of John. I want to become like John. I want to be his disciple. So this has been going on. We don't know exactly how long, but John's got some disciples. Well, John's message has always been, not me, but the one who's coming after me. Not me, but the one who's coming after me. Over and over again, people are asking, are you the one? Because you're doing some awesome stuff. Not me, but the one who's coming after me. So that's been the message that his disciples have been hearing and learning, right? It's not about me. I'm just preparing a way. And then, then they hear him, that's the one. And, and we don't know if they were there the day before. Maybe they were out drawing crowds. Maybe they were out telling people to come in. We don't know. But here in this moment, they're standing with John. And Jesus has been baptized the day before. John now knows who he is. He's made that public proclamation. And he's standing with his disciples. And he says, there he is, guys. The one I've been talking to you about, the one I've been saying is coming, that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, there he is. Behold, that's him. Behold the Lamb of God. And this is where the two disciples 
heard him say this, and they do what? They follow Jesus. They walk away from John, their teacher, the one who they've set under. They walk away from him, and they begin to follow Jesus. This is John doing his job. This is John saying, I'm, not, I'm here to make much of another, and that other one is here. I need to turn your eyes off of me and onto him. And as he does that, the disciples go, okay. Like if they're in with what John has been teaching them, then this is the moment. And so they, they walk away from John. He's no longer the, the, the main character. He's no longer the point. It's about Jesus. And so they begin to follow Jesus. It's an incredible moment. I want you to make note that John opened his mouth, said with his, with his words, behold, that's the one. That's the one. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we go on throughout this story. Verse 38, Jesus, so the, uh, verse 37 rather, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And so physically happening, he walks by, John says this, they go with him. Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, this is a fascinating passage. This is a fascinating verse, really, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, this, this sort of, the, the way that John is setting all of this up, I want, you to, I want you to be really keenly aware and looking for the intentionality of John in this writing. Again, part of the reason we're going so slow because there's so much in here. When, when we see that the first recorded act of God in the flesh acting as such from John's gospel is that he does what? He turns. He turns and he faces these disciples of John, these Israelite, these Jews that have come toward him. He turns. Now, I think for John's Jewish reader, this would have implicitly brought up uh, so much of the longing of the Old Testament of how long, O Lord. If you read your Old Testament, if you read the Psalms, and you should read the Psalms, there is a longing in there of how long, Oh Lord, how long will you how long will you allow this specific suffering in my life personally? Sometimes there's stuff going on for David that he's just like, how long are you gonna let these 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 people oppress me, these people attack me, and my name be ruined? When will you vindicate me? But also there's a, a larger uh, longing and groaning from the people of God. How long, oh Lord, till you intervene in your world? How long till you come? How long till you save us? Many of you have begun to Resolve that the Lord's not going to show up for you. That no one's listening to your prayers. That if it's going to be, it's up to me. Some of you, this is your posture. Some of you, that's what you were taught. It was embedded, like embedded into the culture of your home. You don't rely on anybody else. You don't be dependent. It's going to be, it's up to me, right? And, and so prayer seems futile to you. It seems foolish. It seems like Man, they're just bouncing off the ceiling. But there is this longing in the Old Testament. There is this longing for the people of God of how long? When will you turn? And we know there's passages. There's a famous passage, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people will uh, you know, uh, turn from their wicked ways, they'll, they'll bow to me and pray, then I will hear from heaven, I'll, I'll heal their, their land. Like th There's this idea of if my people will turn to me, Malachi uh, 3, Zechariah, say God will turn toward his people, he will, uh, if his people pray. Like th There will be this moment whenever God hears and, and turns in such a way that it begins to change the course of history 
toward a salvation that no one could have dreamed of. It's no longer just about a specific context and getting people, Israelites, saved from their oppressive enemies that are neighboring them, the Philistines or the Syrians or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a bigger picture now where the Lord is going to turn toward his people and it will no longer be this come toward, or whatever, you know, like when will you turn? It's gonna turn into what Jesus is gonna say to his disciples next is this come and see. But Jesus turning is God in the flesh. And these two Israelites, his people, these two disciples, have begun to seek him. They begin to follow him. And the first recorded act from John is that the, the incarnated God turns toward them. This is incredible, uh, momentous, huge historical implications that John is drawing our attention to. But it's interesting because instead of this big announcement from Jesus, ah, my first followers, man, we got some awesome work to do. What does he do? He asks them a strange question, doesn't he? He asks them a strange question. He goes, Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? I want you to imagine that our welcome team this morning when you came in the door, stopped you before you got in the door and said, what are, you, what are you seeking? Why are you here? That'd be weird, right? You're going on Facebook about this church, right? They wouldn't even let me in. They're asking me questions. Why am I here? Seems like a cult, right? Starting rumor. It's, it's weird. That would be weird. That would be staggering. That would, that would catch your attention, right? Jesus looks at these guys who have turned to follow him and says, what are you seeking? Now, it's funny to think about that, but now I want you to hear Jesus looking at you today, wherever you are, wherever your story is, wherever you find yourself in the midst of your life, and now you found yourself here at the Journey Church, uh, you know, in March in 2023, listening to this weird guy. What are you seeking? Why are you here? Some of you make it causes you to squirm. I, I don't know. Lord, I, I don't know. I just I just came. I, I thought it was the right thing to do. I, I don't know. Like, but, but what are you what are you what are you seeking? Why have you come to this place on this day? What are you after? See, this isn't the question that somebody who's dr trying to draw a crowd and grow a crowd ask, is it? If someone's trying to just draw a crowd. They don't ask people why they're here. They just want to keep them here. They want to placate to them. They want to please them. They want to impress them so that they'll come back. But we're going to see over and over again, Jesus is like, what are you seeking? What are you, what are you after? We're going to see in just a few chapters, um, Jesus will feed the 5,000. It's an incredible moment. And then the next day, they gather again. They hunt him down, and they're there. And Jesus gives a really harsh sermon and calls all of them out and says, you just want to see another show and get some more food. It's not why I'm here. And they all just kind of look at each other like, what, really? Dude, like, we're here for you. Why would you? And most of them leave. And Jesus then looks at his disciples who are now with him, and he goes, y'all want, want to leave too? And the disciples answered in that moment is telling to what Jesus is driving at here because the disciples go, where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of life. 
So here, Jesus looks at these disciples and says, what, what, why are you following me? Because there's going to be a lot of people that come to Jesus for a lot of different things. There's going to be a lot of people that come to Jesus hoping that he will give them the easy fix, hoping that he will do this or do that, that he will tell them this or tell them that, hoping that coming and getting a little religion, a little spiritual renewal in their life will lead to their marriage problems or will you know, get rid of the consequences of their sin that they've caused by destroying their family or by doing this or, or getting in this amount of debt. They're hoping that, that coming will, will just kind of be the easy button fix for their life. And Jesus says, listen, if you're just here for, for my stuff, then I'm gonna go ahead and tell you to leave. He tells lots of people, no. People are like, hang on, I wanna come, but just let me, let me go say goodbye to my family. Jesus goes, no, go ahead. You just stay with him. Right, what is up with this Jesus? Why is, he, why is he starting things this way? Why does he continue to do this? Because he's after the people who have actually like seen what God is doing. They know that this is the promise being fulfilled. They, they've, 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 they've moved out of just seeing and consuming and, oh, I want to see a cool show. They're, they're, he's not looking for the people that are just going from church leader to church leader or church service to church service, seeing who's the coolest. I've said for years, I'm not interested in being a church that is just one more option on the buffet of churches for people to choose, and we hope that we get some of the market share. Because to do that, you know what we gotta do? We gotta have a really good band, a really coolest, we gotta have a good production, right? I've gotta be funny, I've gotta do this, I've gotta, what, like, and, and guess what? People will come. They'll get tired of the show down the road. You're tired of the show across town. And they'll come here, and they'll check us out, and they'll like it for a moment. They like that we're real. They like that we're honest. They like that we preach hard truth. They like, they like those things. But then, eh, you know what? Worship's not exactly like it would be. God, I like Jordan, but man, he talks too long. I wasn't supposed to be that funny, Vicky. <laughs> you start to see where Jesus is getting at. Why are you here? And what are you seeking? It's a weird question. And their answer is kind of equally weird if you don't do some context digging, isn't it? Because they go, uh, where, where are you staying? It sounds like a weird, like, I don't want to answer that. So where, where are you crashing, Jesus? But it's not. Again, back to the context of teachers having disciples. This answer from these two disciples is really their, their way of saying, like, we just we want to go where you're going. We we are seeking someone to follow. We want to like we want to go wherever you're leading us. We want whatever God is doing. John has told us that God is doing something incredible, and he says, That's you, so here we are. It's this incredible show of faith. Like, I don't even know where we're going, Jesus, but it's uh, wherever you're going, that's where I want to go. This is what they're saying when they say, Where, where are you staying? Because they're saying, well, where, where, are you, where are you housed out of? Where, where is this ministry? Where are you going to be leading us to? Where are we crashing tonight? Because we're here with you now. We're all in. 
They're, they're shifting their alliance, their loyalty, their learning from John the Baptist over to Jesus. And Jesus goes, all right, come and see. And, and we're off. This ministry has been launched that will eventually turn the whole world upside down. They have no idea what they're getting themselves into, but they're going to see some of the most incredible miracles, most incredible moments of their life. They're going to hit some really high highs, and then at some point they're going to crash to really low lows when that Jesus that they've given their lives to follow ends up dying on a cross. See, they don't have the whole story like you and I do. They don't know how this ends, but they're all in with what God is doing in this moment. What are you seeking? Why are you here? This is not to condemn those that have come for less than perfect motives and to say you're not welcome. By no means. You come here because you didn't like the music at your last church, I'm glad you're here. But please don't stay hoping that our music will impress you. Same about the preacher, same about chairs, whatever. Kids ministry. It's not... The point is not to make you feel bad for why you came. The point is to get your eyes off of that and up to Jesus. Because if you're seeking anything less than that, it becomes about a show, it becomes about a production. But if you're seeking Jesus, if you're seeking life, if you're seeking healing, if you're here with a true burden, you're like, I don't give two snots what kind of music you're singing. My life's a mess. And I've heard that there might be life here. I've heard that this Jesus that people are talking about might actually be able to do something about my mess, that I might not have out him. That's why I'm here. To you, Jesus says, come see. Come see. It's going to be awesome. And, and they go, and they hang out. They, they, tell, they call him rabbi, which is their way of saying, like, you're our teacher now. You're, we're following you. And so verse 39, he says, come and see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they, they stayed with him on that day. Those, those words are drawing us back to this idea of God tabernacling with us, like dwelling in our midst, right? This is not just a blow-by that we got to get some of Jesus while he's here if you can. No, he's, he's dwelling with them. He's staying with them. It's even timed out like to the, to the 10th hour, right? Till four o'clock, they're there with him, just, just being with Jesus. He says, okay, you, you want someone to follow? You want life the way that it was meant to be, you're tired of your own devices, you're tired of trying to save yourself, you're tired of trying to do better, try harder, get your life in order, okay, come and see. And so they spend the day with Jesus. It's an incredible, incredible moment that John is leading us to really be stirred by. Verse 40 says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother. So th this is going to identify one of those disciples. The other is going to remain anonymous. There's a lot of ink spilled about who it is and what that, you know, whatever. It, it really, we don't know. And the anonymity is on purpose from the writer John. And so we just need to let that be true and let that know there's people saying, well, maybe it's John himself. And I think that's possible. I think it's very likely, actually. But the, the point is, John leaves it out. There was two disciples. Only one gets identified for us. And that one is the brother of Simon who will later be called Peter. Now, John's writing this several years after Jesus' resurrection to a people who will have heard of Peter. Peter will be a, a fairly famous figure for most of the people at this point, uh, pastoring a church in, in Jerusalem, uh, leading a lot of people, like a lot of stories about Peter, Pentecost. We're gonna get to that, like a lot of stories. So he's identifying this person that, 
you know, his brother Andrew gets identified by the more well-known Peter, but it's, it's also positioning some context for the story. And, and so th- that happens to be one of the disciples is Peter's brother. His name is Andrew. What does he do? He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He, he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is an incredible story. Now, I, there's, there's debate about this, too. You try to bring... Um, clarity and, and, and resolve some appearing conflicts between the different gospel accounts, and, and, and it can be a bit confusing, but they all are, they're all telling the truth. They are all telling the same story with different purposes and different uh, perspectives, but, but here's the deal. You may know of a different story of Jesus or of Peter following Jesus, and I would say this story, I think, happens before that story. So you may know the story. I think it's in Luke 5 um, where Jesus is teaching. And uh, the crowd's press in on him, and so he needs a boat, right? And so he uses Simon Peter's boat um, to, to, you know, be pushed out a little bit so he gets some space so he can teach the crowd that's up on the land. And then afterward, he tells these guys who are fishermen, they've been, he goes, hey, how, how was your night? Did you, did you catch any fish? And they're like, no, it was terrible. We didn't catch anything. And he goes, go ahead and, go ahead and, uh, go ahead and try again. And they're like, dude, no. We just cleaned our nets, which we have no context for, but it was a, a laborious task. Right, and, and he goes, yeah, well, just try on the other side of the boat here. And they're like, okay. And, and, and we see even then from Peter, like there's a respect and authority. He goes, okay. And so he does it. And, and their nets are overfilled. It's an incredible moment. And if you know the story, Jesus, or Peter hits his knees in that moment and says, I don't know who you are, but I'm a wretched man. And I need a savior and good grief. You're amazing. That's my paraphrase. But Peter, from that moment... Is told by Jesus, you're going to be a fisher of men. Come with me. I think this happens before that. I don't think that was Jesus or Peter's first encounter with Jesus. I think this was his first encounter. So we don't know exactly what kind of life change went on with Peter between here and there or how many days. Or We don't know that stuff. We, we've seen Peter be a bit of a slow processor in other places. Anybody else can relate, right? Jesus is not impatient with him, but he plants the seed here and he's brought there by his brother and Jesus looks at him intently. In the same kind of gaze that John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God, Jesus looks at Peter and says, I know you. You're Simon, the son of John. But that's not gonna be your future. That was your past. You're going to be called Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. He says, he declares to him, you're mine, and I have a purpose for you. Now, again, the people here, they would have known about Peter's ministry. Many of us, if you've been around church for a little bit, you know a little bit about Peter's ministry. But before we land there, I want to reverse just a little bit and zoom out and go back to the video, and I want you to think about the absurdity of God's plan that translates into the brilliance of God's plan because John the Baptist had said, I'm here to be a witness, a voice, one crying in the wilderness, telling others about the one. I'm not the one. Simply one telling about the one. And I told you when we walked through that that John is a prototype for who we are to be, as image bearers, as ones who are made in the image of God and sent to the earth or made and put in the earth to, to reflect back to the rest of the world who our God is. 
We are to be witnesses. We are to be people who point other people to the glory of God. John the Baptist does that. He does that generally in his ministry. Publicly, he's preaching. But then, very specifically, with his guys, two guys standing next to him. Jesus walks by. John opens his mouth and says, that's it. That's where we find life. That's our hope. That's where salvation will be found. And incredibly, his witness is effective, isn't it? His opening of his mouth and saying to these disciples works. God uses it. Because why? The disciples follow Jesus from there on out. Like, it's this incredible thing we start to see. We talked about a few weeks ago that God has ordained for his message to go out through the opening of the mouths of his people. He says, Listen, there's no other way to get saved except through Jesus. And there's no way to hear about Jesus unless there's preachers. And there's no way for there to be preachers unless they're sent. And there's no way for them to hear unless they open their mouth and talk. And I'm sending preachers. I'm sending missionaries. I'm sending people to open their mouths to share the good news of the gospel. And through this, the whole world will come to know. Jesus has said, people speculate all the time. When's the end coming? We're talking about these crazy events, right? Like if you get the right peculiar pastor, preacher, televangelist fella, what he's saying and interpreting the, the world's times, and you watch, you know, some, some news, Fox News, CNN, and you start trying to put your map together, you can get yourself real freaked out real quick. You're reading Revelation, you're like, I don't know, I think this guy could be the beast. Pretty sure, Right? Everybody got their COVID shot. Now we got the mark of the beast. I didn't get mine, whatever. Like, and we start to get all of this, these, these interpretations. We get ourselves real spun up, right? Jesus led us to none of that. Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to save people, and I'm going to keep saving people. And you don't want to know when I'm going to come back? When I've got people from the whole earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation, that's when it'll end. Matthew 24, 14. He says, that's, that's when it'll end. When all the world has heard the good news of the gospel, then the end will come. So you're like, well, I mean, what does that mean? Is it this people group? I mean, it depends on how you divide it up. I mean, there's people on every continent that know. Is it that or is it country or is it this? Is it, is it national, like, you know, autonomous nations or is it people group, ethne, whatever? Here's what one of my favorite pastors, David Platt, will say. We don't know, but here's what we do know. He's not back yet, so there must be more work to be done. And so Jesus has said, I'm going to ransom for myself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's where he's going. That's what he's doing. I love it. I, I love, I, I missed so much of his era. I started watching basketball just as Larry Bird was on his way out. But one of my favorite things about Larry Bird is watching him and hearing stories about him calling a shot. If you don't know, it's okay. But he, he, would, he, would, he was just almost... It seemed like he was almost bored with basketball. He was so good. And so he would just spice it up by telling people, hey, I'm going to get the ball here. I'm going I'm I'm to curl to the corner and shoot an elbow in your face. And it's going to go in. I'm going to win the game. And he would do it over and over again. He would call his shots. Jesus has called his shot. He said, I'm going to get people from the whole world. Revelation tells us at the end, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation at Jesus' throne. It's going to be a glorious, diverse, and overwhelming experience when we see the work that Jesus has done. And so, zoom back into the context. 
That begins here. John opens his mouth, tells his disciples, that's him. The disciples respond to that and go and follow Jesus. Jesus says, come and see. They spend the day with Jesus. And then what, is, what do we see? Andrew, the first thing, goes and finds his brother Peter and tells him, you gotta come. We found the Messiah. We, the answer to, to the world's problems, to our life's problems, to hope, to all of that is in this man. We found him, the one that God has promised. He's here. His name is Jesus. Come and see. And so we see Peter shows up and, and Jesus makes this proclamation, begins to change his life, but we see all of this is stirring because John spoke to his disciples. One of them was Andrew. Andrew responds and follows Jesus. Andrew spends the day with Jesus and then is so moved that it's the first thing that he does, verse 41 says, as he goes and finds his brother. And here's the deal. We can watch videos like this. We can preach sermons about the church being sent on mission and that it's not my job to evangelize everybody. It's actually my job to help equip you guys to evangelize the people that you're around, and, and we do. But you can, you can even hear video, you know, watch videos like that, like, I know I should be evangelizing. I know I should do this. And it can seem like this task that we're supposed to do. But here's what I want you to see. In the Bible, it is both commanded and then just naturally compelled. Because it's, it's commanded, but it's also just compelled. When people encounter Jesus, they can't help but go and tell people about Jesus. They can't help but be stirred to the point that they begin to open their mouth and proclaim who Jesus is. Think about something you love. Think about something you enjoy. That could be a show you watched, right? Some of these big shows that have got everybody's attention, like you know, a few years ago, like This Is Us. It was way too exhausting for me, but I know it was a big deal for many of you. Um, but people, you know, people are talking. Did you see the episode? Did you see this? Do you know this, right? Yellowstone. I, I don't know. I haven't seen any of these, but I, people start to talk, right? We've got March Madness right now. Did you see the game, right? What game? I don't know. Did you see the game? Whatever one got you excited, right? Did you see the Super Bowl? Did you see this, right? When, when we've been in an experience that, that gave us some kind of joy or excitement, what do we want to do? We want to share that. The ultimate end of enjoying that, like it consummates on us sharing it with somebody else. To just be in an experience, to just watch it by yourself is, is kind of less than. If you're alone and you watch this game, what do you want to do? You want to call your friend, your spouse, whoever. If you're in a group, if you're at the Grinnell's house when the Chiefs are playing, right, they don't just sit there with stoic faces and watch each other, right? They're up celebrating and hugging and, and Shane's videoing, and it's fantastic, right? Why? Because, the, like, the end of that joy is to get up and, like, did you see that? Did you, were you, did you, right? Like, you're just sharing in this joy. That happens when we see Jesus. See, Jesus' commands are never this heavy burden that just says, you know what, you got to really do more. You're here, and you're like, what is life about? And Jesus says, well, you really got to try harder and do better. I've already told you the law. Just figure it out, dude. Right? That's not the invitation of Jesus. He says, if you're tired of that, come to me. Why? Because my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Why? Because it's compelled from the inside out with an incredible joy. That when he sets us free, when we see who he is, we are compelled to go out and tell others. We are compelled to go out and open our mouth and say, you have got to know about Jesus. So a sermon like this doesn't end with, hey, 
be a good Christian and go tell three people about Jesus this week. A sermon like this ends, needs to end with, hey, behold the Lamb of God. Get a load of Jesus. See him. Sit with him. Bring all of your junk to him. Let him totally change your life. And then guess what? You're going to want to tell. It's going to be in you. It's going to be just a part of your conversation. You're going to be ready to, to just spill it. It's going to just ooze out of you. The Bible says out of the heart the mouth speaks, right? We're usually talking about the negative stuff. You got a filthy mouth? What's in there? You got filth in your heart. It's coming out. Listen, the more Jesus is in your heart, the more Jesus comes out of your mouth. And Jesus uses what comes out of our mouth to advance his kingdom. So track with me just real quick. Go back to the video. I want you to think about John being an effective witness, opening his mouth. Andrew and this other guy that we don't know here, and they follow Jesus. Andrew seems to be an evangelist type because every time we see Andrew, we see him two other times in the gospel. Every time he's bringing people to Jesus. He can't just live his life and not bring people to Jesus. So the first person he brings, the first thing he does, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He spent all day with Jesus. Maybe I'll get some dinner. I need to get some rest. I'll call Peter tomorrow. No, he goes, i got to go get Peter. He's got to know. He's got to know. So he goes and gets Peter. I don't know how this scene went down. I want to picture it. Peter walks in the room, right? This is the Messiah. Jesus looks at him and just says, you're... You're John's boy, and your name is Simon, but you're my boy now, and your name will be Peter, and I'm going to use you fantastically. Listen, that's the big idea, that we bring people to Jesus, and then he does the work of changing their life. Yes, Peter will be a, a formative piece of the early church, the rock. There's intentionality with that. But this passage makes it clear that it has nothing to do with Peter the man. Right? He didn't earn this somehow. It wasn't his entrepreneurial spirit. Right? Jesus didn't give him an assessment to see if he was going to be a good church planner. Jesus goes, hey, I've got plans for you. Your past is no longer defining. Your future will be defined by being mine. Your new name is Peter. So if you're here wondering about Christianity, that's the good news. Whatever your story is, whatever your past is, whatever you've been defined by, this Jesus has the authority. Because it's not just anybody. For them, a name was significant. Simon was a really common name for the Jews. The name was significant, not just in how you got identified, all right, that's so-and-so, but about who you were, what you were about, what your character was like. Names were intentional. So for somebody to change a name is pretty presumptuous from an authoritative standpoint. But guess why Jesus can do that? Because before we were, he was. Before Abraham was, he was. Back in eternity, he was there. He was with God, and he was God, and he made all things. All things that were made were, were made by him, through him, for him. Not anything that was made wasn't made by him. That's who Jesus is. He takes on flesh, comes into our world, and he starts to name people new names, rewrite their stories, and change the world forever. That can be you today. Whatever your story is, whatever you're bringing, Jesus says, I see you. 
There may be nobody else on this earth that knows your story. There may be nobody else on this earth that knows what has happened to you or what's been done by you. The tears you've cried, the struggles you've had. Now listen, Andrew didn't bring uh, Jesus a bio about Peter. He just brought him Peter and Jesus looks and says, I know who you are. And now you're mine. That's how the gospel works. He knows your junk. He knows your stories. He knows your fear. He knows your guilt. He knows your shame. He knows your pride. He knows your brokenness. And he says, man, if you will see me for who I am. And perhaps he uses the words of myself and the musicians and Micah and others opening our mouths this morning. to reveal to you the truth of who he is. This is not just Christianity that identifies us as a country over this and that or over, no, no, this is about a savior who has come to save people like you with stories like Peter. Will you see him today? Will you behold him? Will you allow your hands to loosen on the grips of safety that you've put in place, whatever they are, and let go and simply say, Jesus, are you? And let him meet you right there. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and reveal yourself, reveal the person and work of Jesus in such a powerful, overwhelming way that we become a people who can't help but open our mouths. As we open our mouths, you use us to change the world. As we look ahead to who Peter became, 